Hey, it's NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Andrew Limbong. If you heard the show on Tuesday, you know how much music can absolutely change your life. In just a bit, we'll hear how the two black women background singers in the Talking Heads concert movie Stop Making Sense influenced author Donnie Walton's acclaimed debut novel, The Final Revival of Opal and Nev. It's a book about music and racism and how your parents <laughs> uh, mess you up, to paraphrase that Philip Larkin poem. Which are all threads in this interview we're going to listen to first. It's with Tiffany Yannick, author of the book Monster in the Middle. It's a romance where the couple at the center struggles to really address some generational baggage. As Yannick tells NPR Scott Simon, when you choose to love someone, you're not just loving that person's wounds, but their parents and their grandparents too. Here's the interview. Fly and Stella meet early in the pandemic lockdown. Fly, love it is in grad school, music theory. Stella Jones is in teacher training. Fly, who was born with the name Earl, comes from a family with a multiplicity of religious influences. Stella grew up a Catholic schoolgirl in the Caribbean. And in Tiffany Yannick's new novel, they and all of us carry the strands and colors of forebears and former loves whose paths somehow deliver us to the time and place we meet one another or sometimes just walk away. Monster in the Middle is the new novel from the acclaimed author of Land of Love and Drowning. Tiffany Yannick joins us now from Atlanta, where she's a professor at Emory University. Thanks so much for being with us. Oh, it's such a pleasure, Scott. Thanks for having me. I have a burning, intensely practical question for you. Okay. (laughs) Because this is such a beautifully intricate novel that ranges from New York to the Caribbean and Africa. How do you plot it all out? (laughs) Index cards, wallpaper, what do you do? I know writers are notoriously anal about these kinds of things, but I'm a reader, so mostly what I do is I just read and reread. Like I've read this novel so many times myself so that I could do it in a way that made a reader feel excited about it. Tell us, please, about Fly's father, Gary. Religious and then some. Longing for a lost love well past what I'll call the expiration date. Yeah. Um, Gary is, he's a person of deep and complex emotions, and he's someone who believes in things that are greater than himself. And this is a gift that he has, but it's also, as many of us who experience the world in this way, it's it can be a curse. I mean, being able to let things go is an important part of becoming an adult, yeah. and it's something that Gary really struggles with. And tell us, please, about Stella. Growing up in St. Thomas, the Virgin Islands, Her mother was an orphan. How do we see this perhaps affect the view of love that she develops and that Stella takes on as well sometimes? You know, we often think of ourselves as solitary people moving around in the world as individuals. But I think that it's our individuality is much more communal than we probably realize. Mm-hmm. Stella herself is a product of her mother. She's a product of her island. She's a product of her nation. Her mother has a lot of anxiety about not having had parents. And then that affects the daughter. We think, where did I get this anxiety or this depression or these concerns from? You just have to look a few generations back. Mm-hmm. Fly, as we noted, is a musician, and I think it's fair to say he was he was almost nursed on weed. Um, <laughs> Can we say that on NPR? I love it. Um, Stella has an artistic view of the world, and and something I think people can particularly relate to. Now she has very vivid dreams. She almost doesn't sleep. She goes to the movies. 
Yes. In a way, she's really um, different than Fly, her perhaps beloved, who lived in a household where he was constantly being bombarded by exterior things. For Stella, her interior life is her the place where she can go to protect herself, um, which is a, you know true for a lot of us too. But the other truth is that we are social beings. So what's happening inside of your mind isn't really not. It's not the all of you. Let me uh, let me ask you about some of the words you use to um, address the reader. You write, you are not falling in love with that one person. You're bringing it all. You're bringing us. When you meet your love, you were meeting all the people who ever loved them or who were supposed to love them but didn't love them enough. That's a breathtaking idea. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the truth. When you know, any kind of intimate relationship, you are meeting that person's traumas, their wounds, their delights, their pleasures, not even theirs, but you're also meeting the delights and traumas and pleasures and pains of their parents and their grandparents. You know, our parents have given us a lot and some of it has been things that we struggle with and some of it is things that we are delighted and grateful to have, but it's all in there. Yeah. Fly, we will explain, um, has what I'll just refer to as, as uh, vivid desires sometimes. <laughs> you like Fly. We, we... I'm kind of having a lot of fun with that character. <laughs> I loved writing him, so I'm glad that you enjoy reading him. <laughs> yeah. Um, I actually gave the first reading from this book um, in a church oh. uh, about two weeks ago. And I really did not think through that the part I was reading that is said indicator in the book is also a part where there's a pretty graphic masturbation scene. But I can't shy away from the difficult or uncomfortable stuff. So flies about 16 when he starts thinking about what does it mean to be to have this body? What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to desire a woman? It's all complicated for him. Stella has has challenges. Let's put it that way. On the one hand, it brings them together, yet on the other hand, it can ruffle stuff up between them too, can't it? Isn't that the truth, though? I mean, the people who we find ourselves attracted to are often the people who have the kinds of wounds that sort of fit right inside of ours. And I think what's happening with Stella and Fly is that they are, in some ways, a match for each other. And the wounds that they have are complementary, which means that they can bring a lot of pain for them. And without giving anything away, I spent so much of the novel trying to figure out, okay, where's the monster in the middle? I'm going to try something on you. <laughs> the anxieties we live with, but often can't put a name on. That's beautifully said. And I dedicate the book to my children, and I call them my monsters. I mean, children are also anxieties in some ways, that we things that we hold close, but that give us a lot of discomfort sometimes and, and fear. How that becomes actually physically realized for each of us might be different. You know, it might be your children, it might be your spouse, it might be your own interior self, or it might be all of it. Tiffany Yannick, her novel, Monster in the Middle. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Writing a fake band is hard if you don't do it right. 
it just feels really phony. But by all accounts, Donnie Walton nailed it in her debut novel, The Final Revival of Opal and Nev. And she talked to Scott about living all of her life, drawn to a rock music scene that papered over black women just like her. There's starred reviews and much anticipation. Publishers Weekly, Oprah's O Magazine, Elle, and more for Donnie Walton's the final revival of Opal and Nev. It's an oral history of the rise, fall, and revival of a rock and roll duo that is so detailed, layered, and compelling, you might be moved to look up the band and try to listen to their biggest hits. But you're in the grip of a great novel. The final revival of Opal and Nev is Donnie Walton's debut novel. She has worked at Essence Entertainment Weekly and studied at the Iowa Writers' Workshop and joins us now from Brooklyn. Thank you so much for being with us. It is an honor to be here, Scott. Thank you. What put this story uh, into your mind and heart? Well, in 2013, I was actually just at home. I was watching concert footage from uh, Talking Heads' 1984 concert film, Stop Making Sense. Mm -hmm. And you see, you know, David Byrne, of course, who I love. And then to his left, you see his background singers, two black women whose names I later learned were Edna Holt and Lynn Mabry. And I had the urge to stick my hand into the screen and literally pull one of them to center stage with David Byrne and watch what kind of magic would unfold for the rest of the concert. And the voices just started coming from there. Opal's voice came first. I describe her as the kind of artist I would have loved to put up on my bedroom wall when I was a kid. Um, and then Nev came after, and then just a chorus of people around them kind of telling their story. What um, does Nev, Neville Charles, the British guy, the musician, yes. uh, hear in Opal Jewels? She's around an amateur's night, black woman, bald-headed, Detroit, summers in uh, Alabama. What does he hear in her? I think he hears something that he would like to hear in himself, which is something completely strange and interesting and compelling. She is someone who, like, you can't take your eyes off her, but you can't really describe what it is exactly that she's doing. And I think that, you know, together he thinks that they will really make a splash. This, um, I don't even want to call it a concert. This event that's at the center of the narrative, event yes. with music and, um, and mayhem, is a showcase for acts in the old, the old, boy, this sounds real, <laughs> Rivington record label. Uh, Opal and Never, part of it. So is an act called the Bond Brothers. Yes. And they have a stage prop, which isn't just a prop, right? It is not. Yes, so the Bond brothers are sort of a reflection of the Southern rock of the era. And I was born and raised in Jacksonville, Florida, which is the hometown of Leonard Skinner. But they were very sort of famous for having the Confederate flag on their stages, uh, on their albums. Mm -hmm. Of course, as a black person, it's a very complicated thing to have grown up around all my life. Um, and so the Rivington Showcase was sort of, you know, the idea of bands that were completely different I mean, had completely different yeah. fan bases and sort of putting them together uh, in, this, in this one event and seeing what would happen. And what happens is, uh, well, I don't want to give away too much, but it's hard 
And of course, you must have finished this novel a year ago, but it's hard not to think of events of January 6th. Well, you know, I had so many people who had read the novel and saw the images of the man kind of parading through the Capitol with, you know, the literal flag of traitors in the Capitol was, you know, quite, quite interesting. How, How long has this novel been a part of you? Oh, my gosh. You know, Scott, I think it's been a part of me since I was a teenager and drawn to music that felt taboo for me to like. You know, I grew up loving alternative rock, indie rock, Mm. music in which I didn't really often see myself because there is sort of a more clear tradition of black men in rock. Of course, you have Jimi Hendrix, you have bands like Bad Brains and Fishbone, but the women are largely sort of marginalized or erased. And it was interesting to get older and sort of learn that there are women that have always been part of the legacy of rock and roll. Yeah. Um, Well, they've been there every step of the way. Absolutely. Big Mama Thornton, Sister Rosetta Tharp, you know, every rock and roll band can trace their roots to something in that music, in the blues, in the church. Does music reveal who we are or who we want to be? I think I think at one point when I was growing up, music was such a part of your life that it was almost like a lifestyle. Like it could mm-hmm. define your friend circle and the way that you dressed. And it could even reflect sometimes like your political outlook. Boy, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if it works the same way anymore, though. Um. Now you've got me thinking about that, and I asked the question. Uh, <laughs> and now, like music is, it's a bit more disposable. Um, I think, though, that it is, it's, it's a good thing that it's not as defining of who you are, because it means you can like whatever you like, and nobody is sort of questioning things about you. Yeah. So, uh, Donnie Walton, give us a, an Opal and Nev song to go out on. Oh. <laughs> We'll try and find it on Spotify, but I don't know. <laughs> well, you know what? One of the things somebody, a friend of mine was like, what, it's going to be so awesome. Like you might have a band make up, like write a whole song based on. Yeah, yeah. Wouldn't that be amazing? I would love to hear Red Handed. Can you recite or? <laughs> I only know the one line from Red Handed and it's, I'm not the girl who can be caught. I'm not the girl that can be bought. Oh, it's a great line. Uh, Donnie Walton, her debut novel, The Final Revival of Opal and Nev. Uh, Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much, Scott. And that's it for this week. If you want more, you can sign up for our newsletter at npr.org slash newsletter slash books. I'm Andrew Limbong. The podcast is produced by Megan Lim and edited by Petra Mayer, Megan Sullivan, and Taylor Burney. Show elements for this week were produced and edited by Jamila Huxtable, Rena Advani, Nell Clark, Isabella Gomez, Melissa Gray, Tinbi Ermias, Eliza Dennis, Dee Pervaz, Daniel Hensel, Hafsa Fatima, Ed McNulty, and Jan Stewart. Beth Donovan is our managing editor. Thanks for listening. <laughs>